The Trump effect on emerging markets, global banking stocks are back, and beware foreign currency share classes. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and this is the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Show. Donald Trump has certainly set the cat among the pigeons, and nowhere more for investors than in emerging markets, and particularly Latin America, where his protectionist policies could spell danger for countries like Mexico. Does that mean you should stay clear of emerging markets funds? I recently spoke to Omar Negyal, manager of JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Trust, and I'm now joined on the line by Adrian Logok, Investment Director at Architas. So, Adrian, 2016 was going so well for emerging markets, wasn't it? And then Trump happened. Why is he seen as this big bad wolf in this region? So in the um, election campaign, he basically uh, sort of made a lot of comments and a lot of threats to uh, emerging markets, particularly uh, Mexico and China, and has sort of taken this protectionist uh, policy where he, he he wants everything made in America, and he's threatened to put tariffs on on uh, goods produced in in Mexico and China, and those two countries were particularly highlighted by him. So it's this protectionist stance, and we just don't know what what that means. But at the moment, everyone's taking a let's wait and see, and uh, and and avoid avoid having to take the risk and just um, dump uh, uh, emerging market stocks until they find out more. Yeah, I mean, Mexican stocks have been particularly hit, haven't they? The peso, I think, hit a record low against the dollar this week. Is that just one that you would be really wary of holding now? It's it's a very interesting area because because it has the, the peso has fallen so much that it now makes Mexican stocks look particularly attractive mm. uh, on a basic uh, valuation basis. But until you know what Trump is going to do and how much policy he will get through, it's still a risk. So yeah, I, I think for the majority of investors, you know, it. it the region of Mexico does look cheap, but it may be a case of waiting to see what happens before uh, sort of going back in. Mm, and I mean, what, what about other Latin American countries? And we'll maybe talk about Brazil in a minute. But because, uh, I mean, they've all kind of been suffering, haven't they, as a kind of whole region? Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of what happened in emerging markets in 2016 was, was, was a rebound from lows, and it was particularly led by uh, Russia and Brazil. So I think some of this was a bit of profit-taking, um, and some of it is also driven by concerns over the strong dollar, which uh, which has rallied strongly uh, sort of the second half of 2016, and particularly so following the Trump election. And a strong dollar is seen bad for emerging markets. So it, it's that sort of rotation uh, that, that's happened that's put, put people on pause. But generally, a lot of Latin American countries, you know, they don't actually export a lot of goods and services to the U.S. It's actually what's on the, what's on U.S. American borders. It's actually Canada and Mexico that are the big big exporters to to the U.S. And China, even then, isn't as much as people might think. So, I think it, it isn't going to be uh, this protection policy isn't going to affect most emerging markets. It's actually going to be just uh, the, those that are the big exporters to the U.S. Yeah, and in fact, that's what Omar was saying, particularly about Brazil, because. As you said there, 2016 was was amazing. And I think Brazil at one point was up, the, the Bovespa was up by, I think, 100%. So Omar was saying when I spoke to him, you know, actually what this is at the end of the year was profit taking on that. And actually, you know, Trump is not kind of a long term issue for these countries. So do you think that's something that you would agree with that, that generally emerging markets and emerging markets funds kind of had that dip in performance as a result of profit taking? I think definitely we saw some profit taking in emerging markets last year. They, they, uh, particularly Russia and Brazil, as you mentioned, have done very, very well, um, and they were they were recovering from their own internal issues in Brazil. It was a lot of political uncertainty and and and, and the impeachment of their president that that had caused the market to fall so much. And that actually that sort of getting resolved, of course, it to rebound a lot as well. 
going forward, you know, there, there is profit taking there. There's still, there's opportunity, still risks in Brazil, but there's stock specific opportunities there as well because there are some attractive valuations. Um, I think the big risk for emerging markets is less about Trump protectionist policy and more about a strong dollar getting carried away and getting too strong, and that could have a, a negative effect on on the region as a whole. But at the moment, the, the the outlook is that the dollar will remain strong, but perhaps not get carried away either, and that that wouldn't actually be as negative for emerging markets as people would normally think. Mm, I mean, currency is such a big issue, isn't it, when it comes to investing in emerging markets? I mean. Is that something that you should consider when you're when you are choosing a fund, or is that just something that you kind of have to just accept will make things volatile? It's it is part and parcel of investing in emerging markets, and it plays such a role in in the uh, returns that you get, but also the the outlook for the country as well, and for the balance sheet of of of, of companies and the economies as well. So I I think when you're investing in emerging markets, currency is part of part and parcel of your overall return. And actually, if you're having a weak pound, which we saw at the end of last year, and, and, and is likely to be volatile and, and remain weak in 2017, um, then actually that, that could, could end up being a, a good thing. But uh, you know, over the longer term, um, it, the, 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 the sort of peaks and troughs in currency will play through and, and, and work out and actually just performs part of your, your, your return and part of the diversification in a portfolio as well. Mm, and I mean, we, we're always talking about emerging markets like, like they're kind of a homogenous group, but they're obviously very much not a homogenous group. And some are kind of more protected than others, aren't they, against things like Trump, against these um, market sentiment swings. Which do you think are the most appealing countries in the group? So I think mainly developed Asia is probably the more attractive. Um, so when you're looking at emerging markets, I think you've got to sort of balance up what's what what are the key drivers for 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 that market and uh, a lot of them are either their commodity producers or oil exporters um and uh, and some of them are oil importers and again commodity consumers and that is what's actually been driving the, the markets a lot in recent years in emerging markets so uh, Brazil and Russia are commodity producers um and that's why they were sort of driving down markets downwards over over the last few years and they rebounded strongly in 2016 Countries like India, which is, is, a, is a massive services country, looks, uh, looks attractive, although the political reform that is going on there has had, had an impact on the market at the end of last year. And then in Asia, you've got that, uh, that they've got the uh, exposure to the Chinese market, which is becoming a big consumption story. And that, that could play out very well and very interestingly for the Asian, Asian markets uh, uh, that, that are still in the emerging market sector. Mm, interesting. And what about OMAR's fund and what about the funds in this area generally? I mean, I had a look at the performance. And so in the last calendar year, this fund, JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income, um, it was up almost 40%. But the year before that, it lost more than 20%. So it's obviously quite a volatile rise. What do you make of that one? And what are your kind of favoured funds in this region? Um, so we actually do like OMAR's fund. Um, I think it, 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 the performance is a sign of, of what, what, what you get with investing in emerging markets. You get volatility and you get years like that. That's a, a sort of characteristic of, of the sector. I think one of the key things we like about this fund is it's, it's, it's quite a, a strict constraint on the income focus. And, and that, that sort of, that, whilst that does sort of perhaps restrict the choice that they can go through, it actually creates a very strong discipline. And I think discipline is, is essential when you're buying emerging markets. Um, a very concentrated fund is usually around 50 to 80 stocks. And stock selection is key, not country selection. So they don't buy 
uh, a Brazilian bank because they want exposure to Brazil. They buy a Brazilian bank because they think Brazilian banks are cheap. And I think that's very important. Generally, the income is a good play. Um, and you've got things like the Jupiter uh, Asian Income Fund, which does have a bit of an emerging markets as well. And that income discipline, I think, is quite interesting because um, it, it uh, sort of creates a, a stricter discipline and a focus on shareholder returns, which are uh, are important in, in in markets that are still emerging. They're not necessarily got the same corporate governance levels that we have in the West, and they don't necessarily have the same uh, political infrastructure that we have in the West. And that so, therefore, having good companies run for the shareholder is, is is one less thing to be concerned about, if you like. Okay, interesting. And so just finally on this, has Trump affected your view on emerging markets and would you be buying them now considering how well they did last year? So, so I think emerging markets are still cheap. Trump has affected uh, the view, if you like, on, on emerging markets. But I think the the main impact has been on on the dollar, which is, is perhaps sort of concerned people. Are, and I think the dollar impact is probably overplayed. Emerging market currencies are, are, have fallen a little bit, but the dollar has strengthened as well. But we're in that sort of uh, sweet spot where these things are not too hot, not too cold. And I think that actually plays out quite well for emerging markets. Concerns, last time the dollar was strong, we had concerns of over the taper tantrum, and, the, and there was something called the Fragile Five. But since then, they've re- repaired their balance sheets and, and a weaker currency, weaker domestic currencies are actually good for corporate earnings in, in emerging markets. So I think if you take a long-term view, um, which you should always do with emerging markets, then I think they could be quite attractive because they are attractively valued at the moment. Thanks, Adrian. Now, coming up later in the show, why you should beware foreign currency share classes. But next, banks are back, cyclicals are soaring and value is beating growth again. We're at the start of a new month and a new year, and that means it's time to look at last month's markets and talk asset allocation. So, Adrian, it feels like we're starting a new year and everything has kind of changed. We've got higher inflation, uh, interest rates going upwards, yields up, bonds down. Um, it feels like January 2017 is a bit like January 2016 turned on its head. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing what, what difference a year can make in people's outlooks. Um, my biggest concern is, 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 as with 2016, everyone just had one view and wasn't really balancing up their views. And I think we've got this reverse. There's, there's a lot of optimism and very little negativity being factored into people's outlooks at the moment. And that um, always makes me a bit cautious and a bit, a bit wary. Yeah, the market seems incredibly kind of positive in the, in the wake of uh, Trump's election, and it does all feel quite optimistic, doesn't it? It does, um, and we, we sort of touched upon it uh, in, the, in the previous conversation about um, Trump's protectionist policies, and 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 whilst uh, you know he hasn't announced any policies, if those get through, if if anything like that gets through, and you get a trade war starting with any country, or you get protectionist policies coming through, that just rises prices, and whilst inflation is good to some extent. Um, um, the reason the U.S. economy has done so well so far, uh, following the financial crisis, is, has, is the, the 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 loose policies, fiscal uh, sorry monetary policy we've had that has allowed the consumer to, to to sort of get more confident. And I don't think the consumer is is as confident as as the, the data may suggest. So I think there is a real risk here that we actually end up uh, um, sort of. Get, it, get overshooting on the things that we think are quite good, like inflation at the moment, and that, and that then impacts on the domestic consumer. It can turn very quickly if if 
if, if the policies are wrong. Mm. And uh, so just looking back at December and in terms of the kind of stocks which have done well, we, we saw the things which were really beaten up in 2015 continue to rally. So it was a really solid month for banking stocks globally. Um, so Italian bank shares reached close to their best month since 2009 in December. And according to the FT, European banks in December are on track for their best quarter since 2009. What, what's happening here? Is this all an interest rate story? Uh, it's uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's largely uh, interest rate story because uh, what we saw in 2016 was the world moving to, to this negative interest rate uh, philosophy, and, and effectively, central banks have made perhaps a little bit of a policy mistake here and and, and drove interest rates so negative across across sort of all, all time all time scales. So from sort of you know a couple of years to ten year uh, yield government bonds, and and that means that banks struggle to make money. And then we saw that sort of reverse as the Bank of Japan said, said they're going to target 0% 10-year yield, which effectively allowed and eased up for the bank to make money. But also, if you've got rising inflation, you will have raising interest rates. Um, and so the inflationary story where we had sort of disinflation or deflationary fears um, has reversed. And now there's a bit more optimism about inflation going into 2017. In the UK, that's driven by a weaker pound, um, which, is, uh, which will drive inflation up. In, in Europe and the US and the UK, that's more about recovering oil price. Um, and in US, then there's the, the, the Trump effect, which is also sort of seen as inflationary. So, so for 2017, inflation is going to be a big story. And this has been good for, for, for the global banking sector, which has been effectively sort of Trading, trading flat a bit and, 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 and cautious. And in Europe, there was also concerns over Italian banks uh, following a vote in Italy that went against the uh, president there. But actually, markets reacted positively to that to that result, uh, which has always been a was a strange sign of 2016. Mm. The, the result didn't go the way expected, but markets then reacted positively. Yeah, very strange. Because in fact, and I think you touched on it there, it, it wasn't just banks, but it's kind of cyclical stocks more widely that have been doing very well, isn't it? I mean, and what what do people mean when they talk about cyclical stocks? So cyclical stocks are basically companies that do well at certain points in the economic cycle. Um, so usually if you, 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 at different points you get companies that will perform better. So, for example, if you look at the stocks that had previously done well, so it would be much more of the consumer staple companies, that, you know, they're the sort of things we buy whether or not the economy is doing well. We buy toothpaste you know, week in, week out, whether or not the economy is doing well. Cyclical stocks are, are those that sort of tend to perform at certain points, and usually we look at uh, we refer it to to the end of the economic cycle as growth gets going. So that's banks who where where people are more confident to borrow, banks are more confident to lending. It's mining stocks because companies are building more, or, or the economy is growing. There's more infrastructure building and and, and and money spent on that. And it can also be uh, consumer discretionary as, as the consumer gets more more confident, they buy uh, sort of more valuable high end goods. Um, so so it's it's that what people tend to refer to. Uh, house builders, for example, would be seen as a bit more cyclical as well. Okay. And so I guess and part of this bigger narrative, as, as you have kind of mentioned about, you know, rates rising, yields rising, so people kind of moving out of those bond-like stocks or bond proxy stocks. Um, among all of that, there is this talk about the great rotation, this idea of a massive flow of money out of bonds and into equities. Obviously, that's been the subject of some controversy this week. Uh, Goldman's David Costin went as far as calling it fake news. Where do you stand on that? It, does it exist? This great rotation is it happening? Um, we saw so you saw signs of it at the end of last year, following the Trump election. Money did what what has been tagged the bond proxies 
to the sort of the these uh, stable growth companies that generate a moderate yield. Um, you know, the performance did come off, um, and the cyclicals did start to do well. So there was some of that, but however. You know, it was in relatively light trade, so it wasn't a big rotation, I don't think. Um, and valuations were quite high in that space. So, you know, I think to some extent it's happening. I think how far that goes on, um, I, I think it's probably been over-egged because at the end of the day, there's still going to be a huge demand for income. Um, and that hasn't gone away. And it isn't going away until you see interest rates normalized. And I'm, I'm not convinced we're going to see interest rates in the UK normalized to the levels that we saw prior to the financial crisis. They may get they'll go up from here, but perhaps not too much. And therefore, you know, you, you, you will see money um, perhaps stay in, stay in income sectors. You might see it rotate out of, out of bond proxies if bond yields start to rise, um, because a lot of money that was in these actually came from the bond market, not from other equities. So I wouldn't see a rotation from 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 sort of income to uh, the cyclical stocks uh, as such, because I think the money actually came from the bond market mm. and would go back to the bond market if yields rose there. Okay. Um, interesting. I mean, one rotation which does definitely seem to be happening um, is this switch away from bond-like growth stocks towards value. Um, what does that actually mean in practice? What are these value stocks that, that the market keeps referring to? So, so value is, is, is one of those terms that, that um, it, it, what stocks, what are value stocks changes over time. Uh, value stocks are basically things that look cheap and uh, importantly are cheap, um, um, which uh, there's a lot of stocks out there that can be value stocks, but some of them are going to be value traps. They look cheap, but actually there's a reason. Cheap for a reason, yeah. Um, so at the moment, value stocks, uh, particularly in 2016, were very much the energy sector, mining, oil, uh, anything that got sort of linked up with commodities at the beginning of the year and got sold off uh, in January, February. And along with that, there was things like the banking sector, which also uh, we've talked about. That was a value sector. It was part of the cyclical trade, but it is also value. They, they were very undervalued, um, partly because the outlook was quite negative for them. But as, as, as the outlook has changed they've become the value play and they've become to look more attractive. Mm, but this is an important thing, isn't it? Because I think it's it's the first year, or 2016 was the first year where value really did um, pull away from growth um, for the first time in about 10 years properly, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the issue with value is that there's, there's always a, a sort of a risk attached to them that, that uh, um, you know, that, and, and it is that there's a reason that they're cheap and, and, and it's usually concerns of growth and, and future profitability. Um, and since, since the financial crisis, we haven't really had that confidence to take that, to take that additional risk. Um, and we started to see it now. Is that a return of confidence? I'm not 100% sure because, you know, in, in the interim time, the difference, the gap between these growth, these growth stocks and these value stocks has grown to a point where the risk has reduced and it's become much more attractive. So I'm not quite convinced it's a, it's a, big, it's a big return in confidence from investors. Okay, but it seems certainly a switch in style. So firstly, how easy is it, do you think, to determine value fund managers from growth? And do you think it's a good time for investors to be buying those value managers? Sometimes it is easy to tell the difference, and sometimes it isn't. Is to be is the is the frank answer there. Some managers sort of position themselves quite quite clearly on the value front. Others, you know, are, are quite great. But there's a lot of managers there that just look at they look at value differently, and they value companies differently. Um, one of the key things is is sort of looking at how they how they generate what are they actually looking for from their investments. So you really need to do dig dig around, and perhaps not 
not get weighed down on the value terminology itself, but actually what the strategy is. A lot of recovery funds or special situation funds, they're quite often value managers. Mm. So you can look for that sort of name in a title. And a lot of UK opportunity funds may be it, and may, may offer that as well. But but you need to do a dig a bit, bit around and get ask around and and, and and try and find out that that sort of viewing. Look at where they're positioned at the moment. Do they have uh, uh, the banks in their oils um, and perhaps a bit of the house builders in there as well as part of the cyclical play? But uh, you know, look at where look at where they're 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 buying and why they're buying it as well. Okay, I mean, are there any value managers that you particularly like who you think you know would be good ones to be buying now, either global equity? or UK equities? Um, so the Schroeder Recovery Fund um, is probably a good example of a really good value, and that's actually a deep value of play. They, they, they've held things like Lloyds Bank for a long time because they thought it was just oversold and cheap. So I think Schroeder Recovery is quite good. They've got a very good uh, uh, investment philosophy, very strict mandate, um, and that fund, fund, fund is, is, is definitely a, a value play. Okay, interesting. And what about um, the kind of assets you want to be buying now, the kinds of funds you want to be buying? Do you, do you think people should be buying up cyclicals or is there a risk that, you know, we're too late to that now? Um, I think if the story holds true and, and, and there's nothing yet to say it won't, um, then, then the cyclical play will, will continue um, and the value play will continue as well because because there was such a disconnect. But uh, I think that the important thing here is that you, it, it's a lesson in why you shouldn't try and perhaps play one strategy over another because, you know, it's very hard to call the rotation when it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you did, you know, if you did, you got, if you got it right, you got it probably right for all the wrong reasons last year um, <laughs> because the, the Trump election shouldn't have shouldn't, wasn't the outcome of that wasn't what we expected. So, so the important is, you know, be diversified, have have exposure to different types of strategies. Um, and then, and that, then, what what that means is your portfolio will continue to perform and grind out good, good, solid returns. But it won't perhaps fall off a cliff if if if, the, if you don't if you get caught out by the rotation. Right. So I think you know you should continue to hold value. You should continue to hold some cyclical stuff, and also could, you know keep hold of that solid growth stuff that was you know was really a multi-decade play anyway. It wasn't you know the the whole point of the uh, the the sort of the uh, defensive um, bond proxies is that they they you know they're, they're stable growers and they will deliver good return over time. It's it's probably not the time to buy into them, but you know I wouldn't sell out of them. Okay, so yeah, keep diversity and um, invest for the long term I guess are the take homes there aren't they um, so thanks Adrian now finally it might look like a clever way to make gains from currency but why shouldn't you buy foreign currency share classes and assets Emma Adjman I see personal finance writer is here with me in the studio um, so Emma with ETFs and other assets you often have the option of buying them in several different currencies on a platform um, now if the pound's weakening and the dollar is strengthening doesn't it make sense to buy the dollar share class? It might sound like it should, Kate, but actually it doesn't make any difference at all. Um, and in fact, if you buy these foreign currency denominated share classes, it might actually end up costing you more. So why, why is that? Um, the main reason is that these share classes were designed for institutional investors um, to use mostly on behalf of their different clients in different countries. So they don't actually offer any real benefit to private retail investors. And the reason for this is that the currency that matters when you're buying an ETF or share is the underlying currency that the asset is valued in. Um, so, for example, if you buy an S&P 500 ETF, the underlying assets, because it's the American market, will be valued in US dollars. It doesn't matter whether you buy a US dollar or sterling share class, the underlying currency will still be valued in US dollars. 
Okay. Um, and you said it actually could cost you more to buy the, the wrong one. Yes, week. that's right. Um, and the main reason is brokers' um, foreign exchange fees. So if we go back to the example I gave of an S&P 500 ETF, um, which is, is online currencies in US dollars, um, if you did buy the dollar share class, your broker would charge you to convert the dollar share class returns back into sterling. Um, and considering that these fees are generally between one to one and a half, five percent per transaction, that can soon add up. Mm. So the advice that we'd suggest is that UK investors should always make sure that they're buying sterling share classes so that you avoid those extra costs of foreign exchange fees. Okay. I mean but but there is a way, isn't there, to protect yourself or or to take a bet, I guess, on the currency fluctuation by buying a different version of an ECF. Um yes there is. And this is different to what we're talking about, the foreign um, currency denominated share classes. Um, what you would need to buy is a currency hedge share class. Okay. So, but, you know, make sure you don't confuse the two. Um, but the main difference between a currency hedge share class is that they use derivatives um, or buy short positions in other currencies. And this has the effect that they can neutralise the impact of any currency movements. So basically, you will only get the stock return and you won't get any of the currency effect. Um, and the main reason that you might want to use a currency hedged share class is if you're buying assets in a currency that's weaker than your own. Um, and normally that would mean that you would get lower returns once it's converted to sterling. But okay. if you hedge it, um, you know, you remove the effect of the currency. Brilliant. And we should say that actually they, they do tend to be slightly more expensive, don't they, than yeah, the normal. Right. Um, Adrian, currency is obviously a massive issue, isn't it, when, when it comes to returns? We have mentioned it earlier. Um, but it's very unpredictable and it's volatile. Um, is it something you should be taking bets on? Currency is generally quite hard to predict um, because it's not just a case of how the currency moves against one currency. It's how it, often how it behaves against other currencies. They're all interlinked. So it's not just how sterling moves against the U.S. dollar. It can be how the sterling moves against the Japan yen, Japanese yen, and then that moves against the U.S. dollar. So it does get very, very complicated very, very quickly. Um, for, for a well-diversified portfolio, it's also quite good to have you know, if you're a UK investor, most of your assets will be in sterling. So it's actually not a bad thing to have some currency exposure as part of your overseas investment that actually helps you diversify your currency as well. Um, and it can really have, it can add a big boost on returns. Likewise, it can be quite detrimental to performance. Mm, I mean, because what is the risk if you buy a hedge ETF, for example, and the currency moves in the opposite way to the way you expect? Is it just an opportunity cost? It can be an opportunity cost. I mean, if you get um, currency wrong and it, and it does move in the opposite direction, um, you, you can effectively think you're doing very well and the market's going up and you're doing brilliantly well, but actually you've made no return at all because the currency's wiped out all your gain. So, so it can actually just it can actually neutralise performance, and, and and you quite often see that in countries like Japan. Mm, I mean, do you think are there markets where you think it is a good idea? Is Japan the one? Um, Japan is, is has been quite quite a quite an obvious trend on 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 currency. Um, so so usually when the uh, currency falls, the stock exchange does very well, and vice versa. And that's because it's a massive exporter. Um, the challenge is is trying to get your timing right when when to buy when to sell the currency. Um, and and it's not just looking at, at the Japanese yen. It's also looking at what currency you're buying from. So, for example, last year 
you could have you could have timed the Japanese yen falling against it, but the yen's always priced against the dollar as a first off. Most most currencies are. So the yen started to fall against the dollar, but the pound was still falling against the dollar and the yen. So actually, it's very you know it's quite hard to predict your timing on that. Um, it, it, it is probably the most obvious one and, and, and the easiest one to sort of try and predict. Um, but also, you know, 30 years ago. That, that wasn't true. The Japanese yen rising did not cause the, the market to fall and vice versa. It's just been true for the last 30 years and, and, and it could easily change in the future. It's not a guarantee that that trend will continue. Okay, so one to definitely think about before you, before you buy a hedged ETF. Thanks, Adrian, and thanks, Emma. That's all we've got time for today. So for more on everything we've discussed, pick up the magazine. Otherwise, tune in next week and have a good weekend.